Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Special Situation Investing. Today we're going to revisit Masabi Trust. So if you haven't listened to episode 13 and aren't already familiar with the business, it might be worth reviewing that episode first. Okay, the reason that I went back to Masabi Trust is that in reviewing other royalty companies, I found what I think is a strength in something like Masabi or Texas Pacific versus a weakness in other royalty companies, and that is, does the company own the assets outright? So in the case of Masabi Trust, they own land. It has a mineral resource. An operator comes, uh, mines or extracts the mineral resource, pays them a royalty, and it's very simple. In the case of uh, other royalty companies, the company will often have a team of experts who will go out, we'll say in the mining industry, And they'll provide much-needed capital to a miner to develop a property in return for a percentage or a royalty stream off of what that property will develop. Uh, Of course, the weakness there is that you have this extra layer built into the structure and the team of experts who's providing capital to the miner uh, could, in fact, just make a mistake or overpay for that royalty interest and that that could hurt you and your investment return. So, Kind of came back to Masabi because I thought it's a real strength in that they own their land outright and that it's a trust structure. Okay, so risks to Masabi. Um, and going back to look at Masabi Trust, there are some risk factors to it. Uh, one of them is the timeline before the trust expires and how many raw materials are in the ground. So uh, if it's the last year of the trust or there's no mineral rights left, obviously, the value of the property is is much less. And that's something that I kind of dug into on this one. And another risk would be that operators, for whatever reason, refuse to work the property. So the expenses are too high or the property is not as uh, well situated as other properties or there's just something other uh, that's wrong. And so the um, the operators don't want to Uh, develop that property or pay the royalty fees. This is a little bit of what we see with uh, Cleveland Cliffs idling of the North Shore mine facility. Uh, The North Shore facility that Cleveland Cliffs runs, of course, is the one that includes the Masabi Trust land. So we will definitely get into that in this uh, added discussion of Masabi Trust that we're going into today. Okay, as far as research involved in this podcast, uh, a couple different things. One was a book that I read about the founding of the trust that was fascinating. Another one was a report from a pseudo-governmental organization in northern Minnesota that did a 75-year report on uh, mining in in that part of the country. And then the rest of it was all from Cleveland Cliffs annual reports. For the first one uh, that I mentioned is a book called The Seven Iron Men. And this was a super fascinating book. It was written in the 1920s, and it takes the reader through the journey of the Merritt family who moved to uh, Duluth, Minnesota in kind of the mid-1800s. And uh, the family was sort of inspired or uh, had this belief that there was iron ore in the, the mountain ranges near them and uh, spent really the better part of their lives out sort of prospecting and uh, just being frontiersmen out in the wild west of the U.S. and and looking around until eventually they did find iron ore resources. Um, 
and they developed the whole mining process, the rail system that, that still brings a lot of the ore from Basabi Trust down to their Silver Lake facility. Uh, and it's just a fascinating read. It's a really well-written book. And you see that eventually um, through uh, Rockefeller and Carnegie and the vertically integrated businesses that they built, uh, the iron ore that came from this Masabi range in Minnesota really fueled the Industrial Revolution in the United States and built the whole steel industry up around the Great Lakes that still you know exists today. So just a very fascinating uh, take on the geopolitical significance of the ore, the fact that it's so close to fantastic shipping that it developed next to an area that uh, had the expertise to create steel uh, from that kind of blue collar workforce. And really just a well-written book, fascinating book. So if you have the time, Seven Iron Men, interesting read. Uh, the other report that I read was the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation Board's 75-year report. This is a group that was created by the state of Minnesota during the U.S. Great Depression in the 1930s. The intent was uh, to tax a little bit of the iron ore that was mined from that Mesabi region and then use the money to diversify or encourage diversification of the economy in Minnesota because it was very natural resource focused in that state. And during the Depression, when uh, the economy collapsed and there was less need to create steel, uh, a lot of the workers there suffered, unemployment went up, and so there was this need to create an organization to help diversify the economy. So it was fascinating to read through that report because it goes through the early uh, 1900s and talks about just that area specifically. And you get a couple uh, things that ring through pretty clear. One is cyclicality. So we know that commodities are a cyclical industry, but um, the state's economy there in Minnesota was heavily driven uh, by boom and bust. So you had the Industrial Revolution early on, uh, so 1800s. You've had uh, World War I and World War II, most significantly World War II, you had this huge production of steel from the U.S. to make uh, all the stuff that you needed for the war. And then as soon as the war was over, production for steel and iron ore fell off a cliff and the economy tanked. Uh, and then the economy picks up back again in Minnesota as far as natural resources go with the rise of China. So China was hungry uh, throughout the last couple of decades to uh, build up all the skyscrapers and the infrastructure projects they've been working on. And a lot of that iron ore was coming from abroad and quite a bit of it from from the Mesabi range. So it was getting shipped all the way over uh, to the other side of the world. So you see that that boom and bust cyclicality is uh, just part of the economy in that area. Another interesting thing that came out of their 75-year report was the importance of the industry to the area's economy. So the point of the organization uh, was to diversify the economy away from iron ore. And they tried to do that by moving uh, IT uh, jobs into the area. So call centers um, and things that were based on telecommunications um, and that worked to some extent, but 
even up to the very recent part of the report, which was just a few years ago that they closed this thing out, you see that minerals and mineral extraction and mining is still a huge driver for that northern Minnesota economy. And that does bode well for Masabi Trust because it doesn't look like they want to uh, shut that industry down anytime soon. Um, more or less, they just want to continue to try and diversify away from it. But it's a main driver for their economy. Another factor that came out of the report that was interesting was that through natural gas price decline, the mining industry was also rejuvenated. You might wonder why that's linked. Um, but what happened was we had the shale revolution uh, over kind of the last decade in the United States where horizontal drilling uh, or fracking or whatever you want to call it uh, rejuvenated the oil and gas industry. We extracted a lot of natural gas in the domestic United States um, and in Canada. And what it did was it dropped the natural gas prices uh, in the Middle West of America and all the way up into Minnesota. What that did as far as its second order effect was that the iron ore mined out of Masabi Range at this point is kind of a low iron content concentration. And what they can do is they can take that low concentration iron ore and heat it up um, after they mine it. And through you know a couple different processes they do, basically they reduce this ore down into higher grade iron pellets. And then those higher grade iron pellets are feedstock in the steel making industry. So until the cheaper natural gas... Um, there was less incentive to mine the ore from uh, from the Masabi range, but the cheaper natural gas prices allowed for them to cheaply improve the ore grade and create these uh, direct reduced grade pellets. And again, it was another boom to the economy, as pointed out in this 75-year uh, report uh, that Minnesota put out. Another thing that they talked about in their report was that the sale of iron ore to non-domestic for the U.S.-based listeners. Um, so sale of pellets to non-domestic folks like Chinese producers increased dramatically. Um, so there's a lot of overseas users who are looking for uh, iron ore to feed their their steel making process and the, a lot of these EAF and blast furnaces, and so they're importing uh, the U.S. iron ore uh, out of that area. So sales basically stayed pretty steady just from non-domestic demand. All right, so that was kind of interesting out of the 75-year report of the area to see what are the macro factors that are driving uh, mining in the Masabi range and specifically for Masabi Trust, if that's what we're interested in investing in. All right, going into the last bit here, um, as far as sources of material, was the Cleveland Cliffs annual report. This is significant because as we talked about in episode 13, Cleveland Cliffs is the operator that's mining Masabi Trust um, land. And so a couple things here. So in the ESG section of Cleveland Cliffs annual report, they said specifically that they're looking to develop domestically sourced that's in the U.S., high-quality iron ore feedstock, and to utilize natural gas in the production of uh, HBI, which I think is hot briquette iron. And this is exactly what that 75-year report 
from the Iron Range Resources and Rehabilitation Board of Minnesota put out, which is domestically sourced using cheap natural gas, take the ore, uh, bring the concentration of iron up in the ore, and then sell it as pelletized feedstock for, for natural gas furnaces. So Cleveland Cliffs looking to do more of what that uh, Minnesota report said was going on in the area, which is a tailwind for Mesabi Trust. Uh, so then you get into another factor in the Cleveland Cliffs annual report, which we touched on episode 13, and that's that as announced in February 2022, it's anticipated that the North Shore Mine, which is where Mesabi Trust land is, will be temporarily idled for approximately four months during 2022. One good thing here is that they say approximately four months. They're not saying indefinitely idled, which uh, for another of their mines located in Michigan, they do specifically say that in their report, that indefinitely idled. Um, this is an, a temporary idle for four months of that facility, which leads you to believe that you know they are going to reopen it. Um, now, what would drive them reopening the mine for good? Uh, it brings up a couple of questions, which are, how dependent are they on the ore from that North Shore facility? How long lasting is the ore? Um, and then the same questions for their other mining facilities. So in light of that, right from their annual report, they have these five different mines uh, that they are using currently. And we'll just run through them right, right now. So from the least, uh, from the least acreage, um, to the most acreage, and by that I mean mineral acreage on the land, uh, we'll just go through all their mines. So the Tilden mine has 2,472 uh, acres of mineral resources. And when do they expire? They expire between 2061 and 2070. The Menorca mine, and this is interesting because this Menorca mine is the one that uh, Cleveland Cliffs said they're going to move production from North Shore, which is where Cleveland Cliffs is, to the Menorca mine. The Menorca mine has about 3,135 acres and expires in 2035 to 2056. United Taconite has 4,900 acres, expires 2037 to 2066. Hibbling, 6,640 acres, expires 2022 to 2056. North Shore, 10,356 acres, expires 24, 2034 to 2075 or in some cases when the minerals are exhausted in the reserves is what it says in the footnotes. So that's a little bit difficult when you're just listening to it. Um, but the takeaway is Menorca mine is the one that they're going to use as a swing facility to cover the idling of North shore and North shore is what we're interested in. Cause that's where Masabi trust land is. But the Menorca mine has less than a third uh, the mineral acreage of the North Shore facility. So Menorca is at 3,135, and then North Shore is at uh, 10,356 acres. Other interesting thing is that Menorca's rights expire between 2035 and 2056. North Shore goes all the way out to 2075, anticipated. So you have a lot more reserves at North Shore and a lot longer lasting uh, lease rights. Um, for Cleveland Cliffs as an operator, which would make you think that they are indeed going to use that facility uh, as time goes on. Another thing from Cleveland Cliffs that was fascinating is just the proven and provable reserve comparison. 
So for we're just going to look at Menorca and the North Shore facility to keep it simple. But their Menorca facility has a proven reserve of 103, um, looks like million tons on this chart. And then North Shore is at 303. So again, you're seeing um, Menorca is at about a third of the proven reserves. Now, proven and provable reserves. So they're looking at what they think is in the ground in addition to what they've proven is in the ground. The North Shore facility sits at 110. I'm sorry, the Menorca facility sits at 110. The North Shore facility, 822. So a lot more reserves and a lot longer lasting reserves at the North Shore facility, which is where Masapi Trust land is. Uh, and that just leads you to believe that indefinite idling of that facility is not really in the cards. Additional things that came out of the Cleveland Cliffs annual report is uh, information on global steel and iron demand. So demand at Cleveland Cliff is expected to rise driven by the auto industry's demand post-chip shortage. As we all know, there was a big chip shortage that slowed down car production. Demand for cars is going up. Pent-up demand for cars is building. Cars use a lot of steel. So they anticipate here in the next couple of years that that pent-up demand and the normal demand will uh, meet up with more demand for domestic steel in the U.S., Additionally, demand is expected to rise for transformers and electrical motors as EVs are adopted. So the electrification of the country, we've talked about this before, but that's a tailwind for steel here, according to Cleveland Cliffs. And they say they also have the right to products to meet the growing demand for renewable energy, as well as for the modernization of the U.S. electric grid. They offer plate products that can be used in windmills which they estimate contain 130 tons of steel per megawatt of electricity. In addition, panels for solar power are heavy consumer of galvanized steel. Where we are a leading producer, we estimate solar panels consume 40 tons of steel per megawatt hour of electricity. So kind of cool how they came up with uh, 130 tons per megawatt and 40 tons per megawatt of um windmills and solar respectively for steel. So those are the tailwinds they see driving increased demand for steel, increased demand for steel drives increased demand for the iron ore feedstock of Masapi Trust. Closing up with the trust specifically. So advantages I see to Masabi Trust, covered these a little bit in episode 13, but we'll cover them again. The first are strategic uh, level advantages. So Masabi's advantage by industrial onshoring of the world's largest economy. And what I mean by that is a lot of lessons learned came out of COVID over the last two years where uh, people saw the limb facts of having a just-in-time global supply chain and started to talk about, hey, some of this stuff for national security reasons and for certainty within our business model reasons, we need to onshore manufacturing so that we are robust in these difficult times that maybe a black swan event comes along that we can't predict. Another strategic advantage is reduced reliance on costly and uh, interrupted international shipping and access to cheap waterborne shipping. So what I mean by that is uh, shipping disruptions. We're still seeing those as a result, again, of, of COVID. And that's causing companies to reanalyze their supply chain and say, hey, if we've got domestic supply, we don't... Uh, suffer the risk of increased supply costs 
and we shorten our supply chain for those companies buying steel in the U.S. Uh, another strategic advantage is the proximity of supply of feedstock to U.S. steel industry is unchanged since Carnegie and, and Rockefeller's days, so back in the 1800s. And again, this kind of came out of that Seven Iron Men story that I read. Um, the steel industry in the U.S. was built up around the Great Lakes area, and you have generations now of institutional knowledge and workforce knowledge and facilities and plants that is just hard to recreate uh, along with the advantages of waterborne shipping and the feedstock being being right there in the Great Lakes area. And it's not so easy as far as a barrier to entry into the business to just create a steel manufacturing plant in LA. Because even if you build the facility, you know, you've got to teach the local populace how to uh, do all the jobs required to make that raw material. And so I see that as another advantage to Masabi Trust is, hey, this feedstock is right in the backyard of the steel industry for the largest economy in the world. And going on now to business model. So first advantage to Masabi Trust was the strategic things I just mentioned. The second one is just the business model itself. We talked about this before, but exposure to commodity price increase without operational costs um, is the advantage. So if you are a miner and you're doing all the operational costs and costs are rising, inflation's increasing, you're paying uh, more for everything that it takes to keep your business going. So your cost of goods is going up at the same time, your price of raw materials going up. And even if you make more money, you get a margin squeeze and it makes it difficult to pass that along to the investors. Whereas if you have a company that owns the assets um, and just benefits from the raw material price itself, uh, your margin can actually increase with inflation. And this, to circle back to the very beginning, is kind of why I came back to Masabi Trust, because I looked at other royalty companies and I saw that they don't own the assets in a lot of cases. Again, they have a team of experts that goes out, provides capital to an operator in return for a royalty stream. But when you own the asset outright, like a Texas-specific land or a Masabi Trust, uh, any increase in price is going to drop straight to the bottom line. And it's just a, a very elegant business model under the macro conditions that we're seeing in the economy today. So that is both the business model advantages and the strategic advantages. Again, I plan to pick away at this stock uh, whenever the price is depressed over what I see as a short-term royalty dispute with Cleveland Cliffs and a short-term idling. Now, when I say short-term, this could be you know a two-year thing where uh, it takes a while to renegotiate the royalty structure between Masabi Trust and Cleveland Cliffs. Uh, but if you can get these shares at a discount and then again, ride that uh, inflationary price increase without the uh, CapEx expenses and cost of goods sold expenses, I think that it's going to be a good long-term hold. <laughs> So yeah, I think in in just to wrap up, I kind of compared this one to a rental property before, and I think that that's still uh, a really good model for thinking about it. That you know, if you could find right now a rental property with a yield of sixteen percent on it, it had no operational expenses required on your part, and rents in that area were rising. When you compare that to other investment opportunities in a world that's uh, starved for yield, 
very low returns, uh, sovereign debt, treasuries, that kind of thing, yielding almost zero. Um, it's certainly uh, enticing to see something with that kind of return that gets a price adjustment upward as as the raw commodity price increases. So with that, hope you liked uh, this additional information on Masabi Trust, and we'll see you again next time for episode 18 with a totally new write-up.